Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bible, please get ready to turn to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. Who in your life can you depend on entirely? Who in your life can you trust completely? Who in your life can you count on perfectly? When life's circumstances has you pressed up against the wall, when memories of your past mistakes and regrets and sins bring shame and guilt and pain, when it seems you have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting with no resolve, no relief, and no answers, when foes and enemies surround you and increase around you with persistent, hateful attacks, what do you do? Who do you call? Our psalm this afternoon points us to the one who is trustworthy, one who will lead and teach and guide and guard us through affliction and even redeem us from our shameful sins. When life's troubles awaken us to the reality that we cannot save ourselves, our God is one whom we can count on completely from start to finish, from beginning to end. Amen? We're continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms, in year three of 15-year intermittent study through the book of Psalms. As we study through the Psalms this year from chapters 21 through 31 this summer, I've been encouraging our church members to read through the entire book of the Psalms, I'll read all 150 relatively and generally short chapters each month uh, through June, July, and August, only on the weekdays. And so you should have read about 50 chapters so far for the month of June to be on pace. And you'll need to continue to read about two to three chapters, and you'll be able to easily finish and read through the entire Psalms by the end of August. It's not too late to catch up. Just need to read 3.5 chapters for the remaining 44 weekdays of summer, and you'll join us on track. How many of you guys are doing this? Okay, sometimes I I forget not to ask, but may the Spirit of God continue to convict you uh, in familiarizing yourself with the hymn book of God's people. Amen? Well, today... From Psalm 25, Psalm 25 begins the third chiastic section of Book 1, from chapters 1 through 41. And you'll see that the ten psalms in this section are marked by Psalm 25 and Psalm 34, which are both acrostic psalms, which serve as bookends for this section. Now, an acrostic psalm is a type of Hebrew poetry which incorporates each letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession as the starting letter of each verse. Hence, you see in Psalm 25, 22 verses, which matches up with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, although there are bits of discrepancies, and the first words of the verses do not perfectly line up with the alphabet in this particular psalm. A very good example of an acrostic psalm is Psalm 119, the longest psalm of the Psalter, which is structured in 22 sections in correspondence with the Hebrew alphabet. Well, the purpose of an acrostic psalm is to subtly communicate the completeness and the totality. And in Psalm 25, the psalmist intends to point us to God's perfect character, who is entirely trustworthy in every season, in every circumstance, for all of our days. So from our passage this afternoon, I want to share with you three ways you can count on Yahweh, our God, particularly in days of trouble. Three ways you can count on God In days of trouble and affliction, here's the outline for you to know and to recall. Point number one, remember God's faithfulness. 
Remember God's faithfulness from verses 1 through 7. Point number two, learn of God's forgiveness from verses 8 through 15. And point number three, trust in God's deliverance from verses 16 through 22. Remember God's faithfulness, learn of God's forgiveness, and trust in God's deliverance. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you and encourage you anew that no matter what difficult circumstances you are facing, that our God is one who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He is with you. He will carry you to the end. You can count on him entirely. Amen? Guests and visitors, welcome. If you do not consider yourself as a follower of Christ, you are especially welcome here today. Thank you so much for joining us at our weekly Sunday gathering today. We've been praying for you, praying that the Lord would lead you here this afternoon and speak to you through his word in a world that is bombarded by so many different truths and countless ways to happiness, yet so divided and so uncertain. We pray that the word that you hear this afternoon will show you that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God, the only way to true happiness and joy, to abundant life and eternal life. We pray that he will give you ears to hear and eyes to see his truth today. So without further ado, let's turn now to his word, which can be found on page 459 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, as you look there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of the message as I read and preach so that you know this is God's word for you. Build you up in faith. Psalm 25 says this. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. How can you count on God in days of trouble and affliction? Point number one, remember God's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, remember God's faithfulness. Look at verses one through three again. It says this, of David. 
To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The first observation we can make is that this psalm is another of David, as the heading indicates, which can mean either the psalm is written by David or for or about David. Some biblical scholars who see Psalm 25 structured as another chiasm, chiasm which is a Hebrew literary device in which the sequence of ideas are presented and then are repeated in reverse order, which by virtue emphasizes the central point. Point A, B, C, in reverse order, B, A, as such, chiasm. And you'll see the prominence of the idea of shame forming the background of the psalm, which you see addressed three times in the opening verses. In verse 2, let me not be put to shame. And twice, in verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And also in the conclusion of the psalm in verse 20, let me not be put to shame. And so we see how the theme of shame forms the frame or the context of the psalm. Of course, we do not know the specific setting of the psalm. Some align the psalm with a time when his own son Absalom had raised a rebellion against him and attempted to usurp David's throne according to 2 Samuel 15 through 20 which may explain the affliction of David's heart described in the psalm, which can be distinguished from pain he experiences from David's other enemies. His own son was pursuing him. And we can see how this affliction tied with the sins of David's youth, as perhaps he recounted the adultery he committed with Bathsheba, and as a result, how the prophet Nathan had told him, because of his sin, David should have war all the days of his life. Yet through the affliction of David's soul sickness, we are given an example, aren't we? A model to follow how miserable sinners can hope in our holy God. How miserable sinners like you and me can hope in a righteous God. As Charles Spurgeon says, David is pictured in this psalm as a faithful miniature, a faithful model. His holy trust, his many conflicts his great transgressions, his bitter repentance, and his deep distresses are all here so that we see the very heart of the man after God's own heart. The entire psalm then is David's plea. It's David's petition. It's David's prayer for God to not put him to shame as he trusts in God, as he trusts in God completely. Now, the way David and the Bible uses the word shame or ashamed is different than the way that we might understand it today. When we talk about being ashamed, we usually mean being embarrassed or feeling foolish. The Bible does address this kind of shame, as in Luke 9, 26, when Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. Or Romans 1, 16, when Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. But the chief and the main biblical idea that is generally connected with this idea of shame is that of being let down or being disappointed, having trusted in something that in the end proves unworthy of our trust. It's an idea that connotes that those who have staked their all on God will not be abandoned by Him in the end. Having trusted God as a man after God's heart, David doesn't want to be abandoned by God. David pleads that he will not be disappointed or let down by God. Hence, this psalm is about trusting God holy and completely. And the question of the psalm and the question that we often ask 
in the midst of trouble and in the midst of affliction and sorrows and sufferings. Will God come through? Will God come through? Well, why would David be concerned that he would be ashamed or that God would let him down or that he would be disappointed by God? We see two reasons in this psalm, don't we? David is surrounded by his enemies. They are mentioned in verse 2 and in verse 19. David says, Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. David sees defeat and destruction is pressing in. It's coming near unless God comes through. He is surrounded by his enemies. They are inching closer and closer to the gates. Secondly, David is conscious of his sin, particularly the sins of his youth. David says in verse 11, his sins are great. Self-doubt is creeping in. David is well convinced he doesn't deserve rescue and salvation from God at all. Yet the truth of the matter is this. David is not without hope. He looks to God in trust, doesn't he? He remembers who God is. David remembers God's faithfulness. Dear brothers and sisters, have you experienced such a circumstance when you felt like the whole world is against you? We may not have armies surrounding us on the regular occasion, but perhaps a family member or a close friend or a coworker who turned against you seeking your downfall, your demise. And as you attempt to stand up for yourself, you recall, or perhaps they make you recall all your past mistakes and your sins. They say, or they whisper, how dare you? What makes you think you hold the moral high ground in this? Why do you think you have some divine favor from God? On what grounds? On your character? On your deeds? Oftentimes, these are the voices that we trust and we cling to, isn't it? Now, this is us. But what about David? David was known in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. We read of David's life in scripture, and it seems David has a great track record with God. And it seems David was a man who experienced God's faithfulness over and over and over again. So why is David perhaps questioning God this way? Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies triumph over me. But this is a lesson, brothers and sisters, the lesson of the psalm for us. Great faith is not automatically granted to us. Great faith is not automatically given to us. We don't attain exemplary faith overnight. Faith is forged in the fire of affliction and strengthened in the school of suffering. Amen? Faith is forged in the fire of affliction and strengthened in the school of suffering. Just when we think in difficult situations, how in the world will we get through this? Just when we think, how will God come through for this, this time around? God shows himself again and again just how powerful and awesome and gracious he is over and over again, doesn't he? Amen? And we are reminded that he has been doing it all along, aren't we? That he has been faithful every single step of the way, that he is God, that he alone is God. And that's exactly what David does in dire distress. He remembers God's faithfulness. Look at verse 6 and 7. It says this, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. I want to encourage you to look at these words because these are words for you. Look how those words are repeated in verse 6 and 7. Remember, remember. 
David is counting on God to be who he's proven himself to be in the past. Remember your mercy and remember your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression. Remember your faithfulness, O Lord. And that's the reason why David looks to God in remembrance of who he is. As we see that the reason why David can plead in such a way, in such a situation, is because God's faithfulness is derived by God's character. David is recalling God's covenant promise God had made to his people from generations past. That's what David means in verse 6 at the end of it when it says, For they have been from of old. David is saying, You have been merciful. You have kept steadfast love. This is who you are. And I love David's emphasis at the end of verse 7. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, remember, remember, remember for the sake of your goodness, for the sake of your name, remember who you are. David is not eluding that God had temporary memory loss at all. David is confessing his confidence, not in himself, not in the situation, but simply on who God is. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, this is a word for you. In times of trouble, in days of distress, do you, like David, remember God's faithfulness? Do you, like David, derive your confidence in who he is, who God has proven himself to be over and over again? Perhaps you are thinking to yourself, I don't know God this way. Perhaps you look at your current circumstances and think your life has been marked only by misery and by disappointment and by discouragement. Perhaps this has been way too long of a season of waiting and waiting. And perhaps your confidence in God is waning. Perhaps your hope and faith in God has been declining. To add to that, perhaps you are believing in the lie of the enemy. Why should God save you? Why do you think you deserve His grace and mercy? You deserve what you are experiencing because of your past sins. Perhaps these are the words that you are clinging to instead of the words of God. But dear brother or sister, this is exactly why this psalm is for you. This is not only the experience and testimony of David. The reason why Psalm 25 is in the Psalter, the hymn book of God's people. The reason why this psalm has been sung as a worship of trust unto God for generation after generation is because David's trust of him is true of all who love and trust his name. God rescues us. God helps us. God delivers us, protects us, guides us, and guards us. Not according to our good deeds. Not according to our good works or our good merits, not according to our track record of holiness, but based on simply His character, based on His covenant love, based on His faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 reiterates this truth in this way. We, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He, God, cannot deny Himself. God has been faithful to a thousand generations, and he will not change, he will not waver, and he will keep his word. Amen? Joshua 21, 45 says, Not one of all of the Lord's good promises to Israel has failed. Every one was fulfilled. Psalm 33, 4 says, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Psalm 36, 5 says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you. Let this word remind you this afternoon. This is who God is. This is who God always was. 
and will be. This is one of the reasons why we try to model through our prayer of praise, praising God for his character, simply for who he is, not for the things he has done for us necessarily. Those things are good to praise God for, but to remember simply in who God is, in his character, to help us grow in our confidence of him, that God will always be faithful because that is the nature of who he is. Okay, it's getting theological, so pay attention. Let me say it again. God is always faithful to himself. God is always faithful to himself. This is the very essence of who he is. And that means everything. That means everything to us. God is always faithful to himself. God being faithful to himself means everything about our salvation. It means so much of why we can have confidence in every dire situation. As wretched sinners as we are, as his children, we can have confidence because of this, because of this reality, because of this truth. But we have so much learning to do about him, don't we? That's why David prays in verses 4 and 5. Look at those verses. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We always forget, don't we? That salvation is from him, by him, through him, from start to finish. Not by our works, not by our merits. We cannot hear that enough. Salvation is from him, by him, through him, from start to finish. We always doubt, don't we? Whether it's doubting him or whether it's doubting ourselves. And that's why the psalm is teaching us. That's why David is modeling for us. We need to remember him. That's why we need to recall his words, his truth. That's why we need to read the Bible every single day because we are prone to wander and stray. That's why we come Sunday after Sunday because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Trust me, generations have proven you cannot grow faith. You cannot grow in faith somewhere out there playing video games. You need to be under the word of God every single Sunday. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Which leads us to our second point How can you count on God in days of trouble and affliction? Point number two, learn of God's forgiveness. Learn of God's forgiveness from verses 8 through 15. And let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, verses 8 through 15 are, I believe, some of the most precious and profound truths of Scripture found in any religion and what makes the message of Christianity good news and not merely religion, not merely religiosity, a set of rules and regulations to follow, to live a holy life, to obtain heaven. No, Christianity is about a relationship, a beautiful relationship, but not merely a relationship, a loving covenant relationship as between a good father and his children, as between a loving husband and a loving wife covenanted together forever in selfless, sacrificial love. Except this love is better and deeper and greater and truer. This love is eternal. These verses tell us why. Look at verse 8 through 15 again. It says this, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Let me stop right there. Listen, because God is good and because God is upright, because of who he is, according to verse 8, notice who God's faithfulness and his mercy and his steadfast love and his salvation belongs to. 
pertains to. Verse 8 tells us, for sinners first. God's ways are not for those who are righteous on their own. As it says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ came to save sinners. Amen? As Jesus himself said in Mark 2.17, I came not to call on the righteous, but sinners. Secondly, the humble in verse 9. God's ways are not for those who are proud, those who are arrogant, those who seek their rights and their ways. This is not God's way at all. God's way is for the humble. Verse 10 says, those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. The phrasing means more in reference to, to those who treasure God's promises and his testimonies in their hearts. And verse 12, those who fear the Lord. Fear here, here does not necessarily mean scared. In the biblical sense, fear is a description of those who are in awe of God, those who are amazed by God, those who understand God's magnificence and majesty to those who see and know God for who he is. And notice, brothers and sisters, the benefits or the blessings of those who know themselves as they ought to know, as sinners, as humble people, as those who treasure God's covenant and testimonies, as those who fear God. They are instructed in the way, verse 8. They are led in what is right and taught his way in verse 9. And what is that way? What is that way that we are instructed in and led to and taught in? Verse 10 and 11 are the central emphasis in the chiastic structure of Psalm 25. In other words, one of the main reasons why God is faithful and good and upright, why He is merciful, why He is steadfast in love, all the paths of the Lord are led to this. For God cannot deny Himself, for this is who God is. Verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Simply, we get to experience God's faithfulness and His mercy and His steadfast love through the pardoning of our great and measureless sin. Amen? That's the point. That's the emphasis of this psalm. We get the pardon because of who He is. How? How? Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Christianity. It's the best news you will ever hear that a good and upright God created the universe and created us to display His glory and to reveal His great love to us. But man, you and I, having been tempted by Satan, chose to rebel against God by distrusting His Word, rejecting His Lordship, by choosing to be our own gods over and over again. As a result, man was separated from God, for God cannot be one with sin. And we were set on a consequential and eventual path to death and punishment in eternal hell for refusing God's ways, by rejecting His commands. But God, but God had a plan from the very beginning, didn't He? To set apart a people for Himself who would come to know His great love, who would come to know His great and amazing forgiveness by His pardoning of sins and by the pardoning of our guilt. The promised Messiah, truly God and truly man. Verse 12 asks a profound question, doesn't it? Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. That man, the man, is Christ. The God-man, the perfect man, whom God chose to instruct us, you and I, in the way, as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, God's plan was to send his son, Jesus Christ, who was with God and was God from the beginning to live the sinless life that we cannot live, to die the substitute death that we should have died, 
to suffer the eternal punishment we would have suffered in eternal hell on the cross. Jesus Christ, in taking upon himself the cross and the sins of all mankind, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus Christ became the truly humble, humbling himself as man, but more so humbling himself as he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ is the one who truly treasured God's covenant and his promises, as Hebrews 12 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus Christ is the one who truly feared the Lord in perfect submission and trust of him. That is why God accepted his sacrifice for sins once and for all, sins of the past, present, and future for you and me who would trust in him. That is why God raised him from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is why Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forevermore. That is why Christ ascended into heaven to take the rightful place as the sovereign King and Lord of the universe today. That is the reason why Christ will not shame or abandon his people, but will return for those who are his, for those who look to him, for those who trust in him and wait on him. Hallelujah. Dear guests and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, if you're thinking to yourself, am I a Christian or am I not? Here's the invitation for you. What is your certainty in times of crisis? Who is your Savior when suffering pummels you to the ground? Many men and women throughout the generations have tried to save themselves through their good works, through their hard works, but righteousness cannot be achieved by willpower. Death is inevitable for us all, every single one of us. Health and wellness and joy is not guaranteed in this broken, fallen world whatsoever at all. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us sitting in this room. So how are you living this life? Do you have peace with God or not? Do you have peace with your fellow man and women or not? Do you have peace with yourself or not? If not, why not? Are you trusting in Him? Are you looking to him? Learn of God's forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Learn that Jesus is the way, the only way to God the Father and abundant life and eternal life. In history, just look at history. No one has come for you and me. No one offers you this grace. No one offers you this type of salvation and rescue and pardoning of sin. No one can do that except for Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't reject God's plan of salvation by rejecting His Son. This is an invitation for you to look to Him. Repent. That means to turn from trusting in this world and to the things of this world. Turn from trusting in yourself to trusting Him. Believe that Jesus Christ actually died and rose again for you. Ask Him to give you that faith and trust Him for all of your worries and concerns and anxieties today and tomorrow and the next day in faith. If you want to learn more about how you can follow Jesus, the pastors will be happy to talk to you at the close of service at the back doors. Or just turn to the person smiling next to you. We love to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Brothers and sisters, these verses are like a gift that keeps on giving. The result of looking and trusting in Jesus, the Christ, are plenteous. It's so many, but here are a few. Look at verse 13 and 14, which says this. His soul shall abide in well-being. And his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Brothers and sisters, listen. In Christ, our souls can be at rest. The reason for those of you who do not trust in God, you are running 
and experiencing emptiness and purposelessness and restlessness is because your souls do not rest in Christ. In Christ, we are his children. We will make it to the promised land, to heaven, because of him. Not only that, in Christ, he calls us friends. In Christ, we are made known of his covenant, his good news, his gospel to share with all we meet. In Christ, our troubles are turned to triumph. In Christ, our shame is turned to salvation. In Christ, our fears are turned to faith. Hallelujah. I love David's confession in verse 15, though. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Man, this is a testimony of faith and of trust. Deliverance for David has not yet come, you see. That's why it's in the future tense. He will pluck my feet out of the net. David's cries are turned to confidence of what, Christ, of what God will do in Christ. I love what 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12 says in a similar situation when Jehoshaphat looked to God in trust amid a dire situation. Write this verse down. 2 Chronicles 20, 12. Here's a nugget. Here's a gold nugget for you. Our God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful example and a wonderful testimony of how God's people ought to be? We don't know what's coming. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Brothers and sisters, what is your posture in affliction and trials? Do you look to God in trust in his past deliverances And do you trust in God for your future deliverance? Which leads us to our final point and much shorter point. How can you count on God in days of trouble and affliction? Point number three, trust in God's deliverance. Trust in God's deliverance from verses 16 through 22. These next section of verses are some of the most comforting words we can all relate to. Having learned from God's way of deliverance and forgiveness often doesn't exempt us from the pain we experience in trials, does it? David's confidence in God's character and past deliverance and even in God's future deliverance doesn't mean he can't be honest with God. And David models it for us, how he does it. Look at verses 16 through 19, which says this. David says this, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. David, in these verses, is very honest with God, isn't he? For he knows that God is the great sympathizer. As Hebrews 4, 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has tempted in every way as we are, yet he is without sin. And hence, David was not without hope. David knew he could offer up his petitions and and prayers and his laments and his cries to God, and God would hear him. God would notice him. God would answer him. God would comfort him, and God would ultimately deliver him. Amen? Knowing who God is, David knew the promise of Romans 8, 18 in his heart, which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So look at verses 20 through 21 again. As David says, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. 
Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, are you getting this? David's prayer is one of trusting in faith. Even as his enemies are pressing in, he relies again on God's character, God's integrity and uprightness. He knows perhaps immediate deliverance may not come for David. That's why David prays, for I wait for you. He doesn't experience deliverance right there and then, but he hopes in God. He says, I wait for you. And verse 22 confirms what I've already suggested earlier. Look at verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Interesting, isn't it? How David's personal prayer for deliverance turns to a petition for an entire nation of Israel, for the entire generation of the people of God. Well, it's not so surprising, brothers and sisters. The faith of Christianity hinges on this very truth that God's covenant made to one man in which God keeps throughout the generation through the one man, Jesus Christ. As Romans 5, 15 through 17 says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Let me just remind you again, His grace is abounding. His love is everlasting. His mercies are new every morning in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, these are truths in the midst of troubled times. How can you count on God in days of dire distress? Remember God's faithfulness. Learn of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ His Son. And trust in God's future deliverance. Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are a God who keeps your word, who promises deliverance to a thousand generation through the one man, Jesus Christ. Father, in him we can stand confident today. In the midst of trials and, and suffering and affliction and temptation, we can have confidence that Christ has come and is crying, coming again for his people. Father, if there is anybody who here does not know you, Father, help them to receive your word, to receive your invitation and trust in Christ for all their days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.